Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. My name is Ferenc Lotso. I am an editor at Refdem, and I have the distinct pleasure of hosting Dimitar Bechev today. Welcome to the show, Dimitar Bechev, and thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Thanks for having me, Ferenc. I'm looking forward. Uh, great to have you join. Dimitar Bechev, I should say, is a lecturer at the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies. He's a visiting scholar at Carnegie Europe and also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He acted as senior fellow at the Center for Slavic, Eurasian and East European Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill between 2016 and 2020. And before that, he was a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Dimitar Bechev has published extensively in both academic and policy formats on subjects such as EU foreign relations, the politics of Turkey and Southeast Europe, Russian foreign policy, and also questions of energy security. His recent books include Historical Dictionary of North Macedonia from 2019, Rival Power, Russia in Southeast Europe from 2017, and he's also the co-editor of Russia Rising, Putin's Foreign Policy in the Middle East and North Africa, which is a volume from 2021. Now, Dimitar Bechev's newest book, which is published this month by Yale University Press, and which we are here to discuss today, is titled Turkey under Erdogan, How a Country Turned from Democracy and the West. Now, Turkey is a fascinating country which plays an important and complex role in international politics. And this new book of yours provides a rich and nuanced interpretation of its evolution in recent decades. So let us perhaps begin our conversation today with what might be the most obvious empirical question. How did the Justice and Development Party change since its foundation in 2001? And how did it manage to capture the center ground in Turkish politics? Or more generally, how did these hopes uh, of Turkey's opening and democratization, which were at some point really quite closely associated with the rise of the Justice and Development Party or AKP uh, to use the Turkish abbreviation, how did this give way to such disappointments and such an ever more authoritarian and repressive regime? You know, What were the key moments and the key steps in this much discussed process of reversal in your view? Well, the simplest way to answer this question is to just say that AKP was once a party. It started as a, as a political force. Uh, it has evolved, unfortunately, into a personality cult. So the party as a collective agent is not there anymore. It's been replaced by a personalistic network centered on, on the leader. Uh, back in the early days, uh, AKP, which of course springs from a tradition of uh, political Islamist forces stretching back to the 1970s, uh, sort of uh, married together a commitment to democratic development, but also an inclusive approach to, to policymaking uh, with um, the free markets and openness towards the West, not just the EU, but the, the wider West uh, more broadly. And it turned it into a magnet um, attracting political support from various quarters, including from part of, parts of the secular 
uh, secular side of the Turkish society. So it transcended in a way uh, this divide, which is pretty critical. But also uh, there were other bits and important players uh, that sort of coalesced with the AKP um, uh, one way or, or the other. Um, the, the big business in Turkey because of the EU connection was very favorable. Um, with all caveats, the Kurdish movement was a fellow traveler of the AKP. But uh, that was, of course, the early days. Um, there were several critical episodes, but uh, to cut a long story short, um, from around 2013 onwards, and certainly after the coup attempt in 2016, the politics of the AKP changed and it became much more aligned with um, the sort of statist um, part of the Turkish elite. It now runs um, in coalition, and we shouldn't forget the junior partner, the Nationalist Action Party, which um, has controlling stakes in many of the state institutions. Um, and it has, of course, changed the outlook uh, of the party. So there are two processes, one leading to the right, embracing Turkish nationalism, which is a big discussion, what is Turkish nationalism, but also um, um, the systematic uh, destruction of alternatives. Erdogan was not the sole owner. And he was the uh, first amongst equals when the party started amongst, with several other figures prominently, um, former president Abdullah Gül, uh, now uh, the party evolved into just a clique of people supporting Erdogan. And last thought, um, obviously there's some ground to be conquered uh, and the past couple of years has, have seen the rise of splinter groups uh, coming from the AKP stream as it were. Uh, that's the Gelecek party established by uh, the former Prime Minister Ahmed Davutoglu, but even more importantly, perhaps uh, the Deva party associated with uh, um, Ali Babajan, the former economy minister, and, and Abdullah Gül. Those are aiming at uh, capturing some of the AKP conservative uh, electorate disappointed uh, for one reason or the other, whether it's the personalistic policy style of Erdogan or leadership style or the lackluster economic performance, but those parties are trying to capture disgruntled um, supporters of the AKP. Uh, but I think that's something that we can discuss later in the conversation. Great, thank you so much for that first answer. And I should say you indeed write in a very persuasive way about the recent emergence of an opaque and personalist regime. And you also underline in the book that tilting the playing field was in a way Erdogan's way of surviving and prospering in politics, right? But at the very same time, you also seem to insist that long-term structural and institutional forces are really behind the rise of competitive authoritarianism in Turkey. So I wanted to ask you a bit about the, the main reasons. Uh, what, what do you see as the main reasons behind this quite dramatic democratic decline leading to the rise of a competitive authoritarian system in Turkey? And how special or different uh, is the Turkish regime when you, you know, try to compare it to other countries that have frequently been discussed uh, when it comes to this subject, right? I'm thinking of Russia, Poland, I may mention Hungary or Serbia, right? Or to take uh, examples only from uh, Central and Eastern Europe, but you may of course wish to compare Turkey uh, more globally as well. Well, that's a, that's a great question as well. And there's 
I can spend hours upon hours uh, delving into it. Um, yeah, I mean, Turkey was never a perfect democracy, even in the best of days. There were many conflicts uh, and deficiencies that tainted the image of Turkish uh, democracy, polarization in society being one, uh, the prevalence of um, what Turks would call the deep state, even if this term is con contested, the nationalist uh, under, undercurrent in Turkish politics, the history of violence. Um, so, uh, and also more systematically looking at the culture of winner takes all. Uh, and that's an argument I'm making, and it's by, by far not original in other people's have also put it forward that for Erdogan at a certain stage, it was a matter of survival. And the conclusion he drew uh, around 2008, when in 2007, but certainly in 2008, when AKP was threatened with closure, was that to persist in, in, in politics, just to, to, to stay on top, he has to shut down alternatives uh, and to defeat the opposition. So power sharing, a coalition culture, was, was never, never never in the cards. And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy with this bicycle theory. There is no real exit. And I think this applies to this day. Another factor beyond um, sort of part dependency uh, and also Erdogan's persona um, is the weakening pool of, uh, of the EU which is something that we could see also within the EU because you, you did this you bring up Poland and Hungary, the situation is very different, but suffice to say that once you become a member, uh, the external anchor doesn't have the same pull on domestic affairs. Same thing happened in Turkey for a different set of reasons, because the prospect of, of membership weakened uh, after, let's say, 2007 when Sarkozy came to power, but even before that with the Cyprus issue. And with um, the prospect fading away, uh, this external anchor sort of um, fizzled out and the constraint on Erdogan externally was also lost. So when you have a system where you have this political culture, uh, a dearth of checks and balances, and that's another threat in the book, the dismantling of checks and balances, and the external anchor being um, dismantled, partly because of the EU itself, um, then you end up with a with system like that. Now, to the second part of your question, I mean, very often people have compared Turkey and Russia, and that's not something recent. As early as 2009, Turkish opposition was screaming foul Putinization. And there is an element of truth there, although for those of us who sort of take political categories with a critical, a critical eye, um, you, it's very often, it's very clear what the difference is between the sort of autocratic system Russia consolidated and what you have in Turkey. Just as, as a fact to it, in Turkey, the opposition was able to capture the main cities in 2019, a bit like what happened in, in Hungary. Of course, that might be a different process and in Poland with gains in Budapest and, and, uh, and Warsaw, but it's unthinkable uh, in Russia with all the repressions and boxing in of, of the opposition. So Turkey, this, uh, unlike Russia, remains a country which has benefited from more than 
six years of democratic development and multi-party politics. And uh, I think society is used to elections. They know their vote makes a difference. And it's, it's not an equal fight because the incumbents always have the advantage. They control the economy. They control the media. That's very important as we've, we've seen in other countries. But uh, the, the opposition, as I show in the book, has learned how to adapt and to coalesce, to uh, overcome uh, division lines that are pretty important. We have parts of the former nationalist, right-wing nationalist camp cooperating informally with um, the pro-Kurdish HDP uh, at the local level and maybe eventually the national level as well. Uh, which means that uh, it's very difficult in Turkey to consolidate uh, a full-blown authoritarian regime. Um, this competitive um, element in competitive authoritarianism is still very pertinent. Uh, and my prediction is therefore that, and he's see parts of it already with the regime facing insecurity because of the economic situation. But longer term, I think Turkey will eventually revert to uh, some form of democratic govern governance um, once Erdogan exits the scene. Exits the scene. Um, it won't be um, exemplary democracy. The same sort of social conflicts, um, political issues, institutional challenges that dogged Turkey uh, in the past will be as uh, pressing as as, in, uh, as before. Uh, but it will be a much more competitive system. And one big question, of course, is what is the long-term future of the presidential regime, the presidential constitution Erdogan helped build uh, after 2016, but uh, let's park it for the time being. Great, thank you so much for that. That's, that's a really great answer. And we definitely want to talk a bit more about the prospects of the country uh, later on. But first, I wanted to talk a bit more about the EU, because I think you show very nicely in the book that the EU has indeed played quite an ambiguous role when it comes to also the transformation of Turkey and its domestic politics. Right. But you also show, I think, and emphasize really clearly that the that Europe continues to have leverage over the country, not least because it's it's very relevant to Turkey's interests. Uh, and we may even talk about mutual uh, dependence uh, having given way to something like a partnership of convenience over time, right? That's that's one of your, your theses uh, in the book. So I wanted to ask you a bit, a bit about that. You know, how do you see the responsibility, so to say, of the EU uh, when it comes to Turkish uh, turn to competitive authoritarianism and what characterizes this relationship, EU-Turkey relationship today? I wouldn't, I mean, one thing to say um, at, at the outset is that the EU is not a monolith. You have different EU actors. And if you examine in a more granular fashion who did what over those years, it's, it's a very different picture because, I mean, the European Commission to, to give you an obvious example, was committed to the process and is still committed to the process of bringing Turkey on board, negotiating in good faith. But the decisions are taken in, in the council. Uh, and there, of course, you have, or had, at least had in, in the past, historically, uh, a very divided, um, a, a clear division between countries saying Turkey would never become a member and country that, countries that were committed to membership. By the way, you, the UK in the old days was, was one. Uh, 
And those countries that were skeptics from the very start, they managed to block the process, be it Cyprus due to the conflict and, and the way there was no resolution in the, the 2004, be it France because of the idea that Turkey would dilute the European Union. Um, so those could actually stop uh, enlargement and uh, hollow out the negotiations process. But at the same time, the other ones who believe that uh, there's, despite everything, some value in the negotiations, at least keep the process going. Uh, and it's, it's a game of smoke and, and mirrors. And neither Erdogan wants to pull the plug, nor the European Council wants or cannot um, form a majority to call the negotiations. So it's, it's a strange situation. But my point is really that um, there were players in the EU system, much more uh, forthcoming attitude to Turkey. And there were players um, committed to put a break on the process. So when you put the blame on the EU, you have to take it into account. And something of, of that sort is happening now, even if um, the negotiation uh, for membership is not where the action is taking place. But if you think about the two big member states in the driving seat, France and Germany, they have very different attitudes. For, for France, Turkey is a geopolitical rival. Uh, I mean, at least for Emmanuel Macron, he believes into negotiating from position of strength, but certainly playing power politics with, with Erdogan. And France's alignment with Greece and the statement that NATO is brain dead uh, testified to this uh, viewpoint. Uh, Germany, on the other hand, for geographic, historical, societal reasons, is much more enmeshed with Turkey. And therefore, a bit like with Russia, it believes in, in, in um, Einbindung, to use the German term, of, of engaging Turkey, identifying areas of cooperation and shared interests. Um, and I'm not sure that it means EU has leverage because that's too loaded a word. But let's say those two have common interests to persist and to develop uh, those areas. And the refugee deal from 2016 would be a clear example. But other areas as well. Now, some colleagues have written, for instance, the prospect of uh, upgrading um, the EU Turkey Customs Union, bringing in. Uh, what people call the European Green Deal uh, on the agenda. Uh, but again, the headline is economic interdependence is there to stay. Um, and unlike the US, which can say goodbye to Turkey and, and there is no drawbridge option for, for the European Union, uh, Turkey will always be there. It will be integrated thanks to the customs union, but also thanks to society and, and geography. Um, and it relate it translates into leverage, uh, maybe just to maybe to contradict myself, but it's a leverage that goes both directions. So Turkey has some bargaining chips vis-a-vis -vis the EU, but also the EU probably has some bargaining chip longer term vis-a-vis uh, -vis Turkey. But one thing is for sure. Last thing I'm gonna say here is that um, we are not going to the old days when the EU could drive the democratization process in Turkey. Uh, that's been that's an that's an old story, and that was a missed opportunity. Uh, I'm not sure we will we'll get there uh, anytime soon.
Right, that's a very finely uh, balanced answer about this really uh, interesting and again very intricate uh, relationship and how it has evolved. And I wanted us also to talk a bit about Turkey on the global stage, because you also show beyond, you know, discussing the, the relations uh, with the European Union, that Turkey has sort of developed a new kind of balancing act between the US and Russia. And also it's sort of trying to have one foot in Europe and the other in the Middle East. So let us perhaps discuss these two matters in turn. You appear to insist that Turkey remains committed to the Western alliance on some level for sure, but that its relationship to the United States in particular has deteriorated very significantly. And there is a palpable sense of alienation between Turkey and the US. Uh, and also there are continued disagreements and tensions between Russia and Turkey, but nonetheless, Turkey has in the meantime pursued a kind of policy of rapprochement with, with Russia and has in fact entered into a kind of pragmatic alliance with Putin's regime. So how would you perhaps compare these two relations, Turkey's relation to the US on the one hand and to Russia on the other? Have they sort of become complementary relations for Turkey, would you say? And is this new Turkey uh, that you discuss uh, in the book, is it really primarily interested in increasing its strategic autonomy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the answer. Turkey is interested in itself. It's sufficiently big, uh, self-contained, um, has a problematic relationship with most of its neighbors um, and introspective. I mean, Erdogan doesn't speak any foreign language, just to give you an example. Um, when it was in the Western camp, um, so to speak, it was never a perfect relationship. Uh, it's good that you bring the US and, and many people sometimes nostalgize about the glory days when Turkey was in NATO and so on and so forth. But I mean, if you do diplomatic history, you know that since at least the 1960s, there were always fissures uh, in this relationship. But equally, when the AKP came to, to power and eventually grew disappointed um, with the EU and turned to the Middle East, uh, which, just to open a parenthesis, was a policy in place since the 1980s because of economic reasons, um, primarily. But um, they found themselves alone in the Middle East as well, uh, or at least they face pushback. So Turkey is not fully comfortable in the Middle East either, even if there's this nostalgia because of religion and because of the Ottoman legacy that pulls Turkey there. So Turkey, uh, I think, is an island and it's a vision that is shared across society, that it's surrounded by competitors, sometimes enemies, sometimes rivals. It has to fend for itself in a growingly uncertain world. Um, and there's plenty of evidence to support this view. If you look at the type of international system that we are ending up, uh, we, we are facing these days. And therefore, the balancing act between the West on the one hand and Russia becomes uh, almost intuitively understandable. That Turkey has one foot in either camp um, and tries to maximize from this position. But uh, what I wanted to say with the Western alliance um, and I quote in the introduction of my good friend Galib Dalai, um, Turkey doesn't see itself in the normative West because of resentment, because of AKP ideological leanings, because of Erdogan. Uh, it sees itself probably in, 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 
what uh, Gallip calls the strategic West. In other words, NATO is, is relevant. It adds to Turkish influence in Turkish power. You can cherry pick, you can invoke NATO when convenient, but then you can defect from it when it suits your purpose. But Turkey is, is a freelancer, it's a lone player. Uh, the question is, is that sustainable? What are the limits of this foreign policy? And I'll leave it open uh, in this conversation. I have my thoughts, obviously. But yeah, I mean, the, the short answer to your question is Turkey doesn't belong to either East or West. Uh, it is there for itself and it's spending for itself. Right, right. Again, one thing that you focus on quite extensively in the book and that might be uh, quite new to some of our listeners is how much more interventionist uh, Turkish foreign policy has become. And, and Turkey has indeed repeatedly relied on its military in recent years, whether it comes to you know, Syria, Libya, or also Iraq. Uh, so I wanted to ask a quite general question that, you know, how would, how, what would you say about uh, Turkey's reorientation towards the Middle East and its consequences? And more specifically, we could look a bit into the impact of the Arab Spring, which obviously had a massive uh, impact on Turkey and also the war on Syria in particular. How has that really changed uh, Turkey also when it comes to its foreign policy, but also when it comes to its domestic uh, politics? Well, that's a huge uh, question. On the military side, I think we are past the high point of this militarization of Turkish foreign policy. It reached its limits because it created opportunities and Turkey made some gains in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Libya, even in northern Syria. But at the same time, it generated pushback and society is not really supportive, especially in terms of economic hardship. And you see now Turkey shifting gears, trying to reset relations with the likes of Israel and United Arab Emirates, even, even, even Greece. Um, and Turkish foreign policy longer term has always oscillated between this kind of sort of more um, militaristic posture and uh, foreign policy consistent with what the EU is preaching. In other words, engage with neighbors, um, promote trade, cooperation, investment. There's always been this duality. In the old days, however, um, the military um, was not anti-interventionist. And the belief was that Turkey has to be strong, but to be in a defensive posture. What Erdogan changed is this idea that you can actually use that proactively to claim a role in, uh, in, in the neighborhood, be it in the Middle East, Caucasus, even as far as Sub-Saharan Africa, the, the, the Horn of Africa. So that, that's, that's, the, that's the new element. But uh, yeah, I, I do believe that uh, the limits are, are, are becoming very clear, uh, not least because of bread and butter issues. And there's a limit to what degree Turkey can succeed and to what degree society can tolerate so, so, some sort of uh, forthcoming or proactive policy. How The war in Syria is, is another big, big issue because it's not just a foreign policy matter for Turkey. Uh, Syria's next door is 900 kilometers of, of border there. The Kurdish issue transcends um, the border. And the refugee influx into Turkey, oh, they're close to 4 million Syrians living within the borders of Turkey, uh, has had a transformative effect. Uh, it's now playing into this politics of intolerance in Turkey with Syrians being scapegoated for the economic hardship society growing increasingly hospitable. Uh, 
which ironically is something that brings Turkey closer to Europe, the European mindset, if you will, um, that there's the irony that Europeanization should not only mean the nice parts of um, we associate with European democracy and, and the European Union, but also xenophobia and tolerance. That's something that Turkey now shares, uh, as it were. But it's this, so, this uh, social attitude is now being instrumentalized, including by the opposition, um, to make gains uh, in fighting Erdogan. Um, Syria was a great opportunity for Turkey to export its model. Um, same for Egypt in the glory days of the Arab Revolution. And you could see those key countries in the Middle East emulating the Turkish example with AKP lookalikes taking power. But it became a huge problem for Turkey, especially with the rise of the Kurdish, um, the Kurdish factor in Syria. And ultimately, Turkey sort of pivoted back to its a habitual posture of trying to contain Kurdish nationalism as priority number one and regime change in Damascus, which anyway, after the Russian intervention in 2015 became um, a goal too far and receded in, in importance. Um, so in other words, what I want to say in, in as many words is that um, when you think about Turkish foreign policy in the Middle East and more broadly, and the Erdogan factor, I mean, clearly there have been many changes, but I see also continuities. And one continuity is this um, nationalist uh, ideology that feeds into domestic, but also international um, international relations in, in, in the foreign policy of Turkey. Uh, that's fascinating. And as a last question, I still wanted us to return a bit to the question of the prospects of Turkish democracy. Uh, you make two really highly stimulating statements in the book, and I'm quoting. One is uh, the narratives of political and economic empowerment of putting Islam again at the center of public life and of turning Turkey into a great power in the Middle East and beyond will resonate with the conservative electorate. Erdogan will be a father figure and his historical legacy will live on for generations to come, end of quote. And at the same time, you also emphasize that Erdogan will remain a divisive figure and that Turkey, and I'm quoting again, has a history of competitive politics stretching back more than seven decades, advanced level of socioeconomic development and links to the West that other things being equal favor a return to electoral democracy in the future. So may I ask you as a final question, how you see the chances of such a return to electoral democracy? What do the chances of this return depend on in your view? And what would it really take for the country to escape from the clutches of authoritarianism or authoritarian consolidation, if you wish? Well, Turkey is heading for a crucial election next year, uh, which will see both parliament, but more importantly, the presidential institution um, being contested. Um, it won't be a, an easy race, and Erdogan has the advantage, but I think the opposition has a fair shot. And some of the opposition figures are polling very highly, uh, including the mayors of Istanbul and Ankara. But even if they fail this time around, there will be other opportunities to capture. Uh, and it's just a matter of 
how big is the margin because um, the, the smaller the margin, greater opportunities for the AKP and Erdogan to, to manipulate the election on the margins, let's, let's put it like that. So it's not inconceivable to see change as early as uh, next year. But even if it's too much of wishful thinking, uh, I think longer term, AKP is losing ground. Erdogan is finding hard to sustain uh, his appeal. There's a soft periphery of AKP voters who never supported Erdogan for ideological reasons or because of Islam or whatever, but simply because their life improved um, in the early decades of uh, AKP rule. So that's now being eroded, it's being lost. Uh, and this opens an opportunity for a reversal of power. I mean, it's, again, we saw it at the local level. There's no reason it cannot be replicated at the national level um, other than Erdogan's um, survival instinct because I mean, if he's facing the alternative of um, going to jail or staying in power, you can understand why he'll be fighting tooth and nail to remain on top of, uh, of, of the Turkish state. Um, so, I mean, there's, there are a lot of uh, moving parts, I suppose, uh, in Turkey. Um, but again, those longer term factors, part dependencies, um, the democratic habits, if you will, at the level of the grassroots, uh, the idea that actually your vote matters, participation matters, um, participation and civil society initiatives, um, party membership, which is pretty high by Western standards in Turkey, um, actually are signs of health. Uh, and it might turn out that this period um, we went through was a stress test for, for Turkish democracy. And even if Turkey again won't become another Denmark or Sweden, uh, by regional standards, it will be if in the medium and longer term, it might develop a more competitive system with uh, healthier uh, political institutions. Uh, but of, of course, this is in the future. But like you said, it's, Erdogan is not going away. Uh, and even if he does, uh, he'll be a father figure for part of the Turkish political scene and parts of the electorate. Um, the way that um, the founder of the Republic, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, and of course, this is blasphemy for some secular Turks, um, but Erdogan um, will be an Ataturk-like figure for his supporters and his legend will persist and, and his legacy uh, will, will be there one way or the other. Thank you so much for this rich and insightful answer and also the complex and precise depictions of recent and ongoing developments in Turkish domestic politics and also in Turkish foreign policy. Thank you so much, Dimitar Becha, for being on the show today. Thank you. I have been discussing with Dimitar Bechev, whose new book is titled Turkey under Erdogan, How a Country Turned from Democracy and the West. It's out this month. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation. Until the next time. Thank you. Thank you.